Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry today for your word, that it may nourish us in the ways of eternal life. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who is the bread of life. Amen. Friends, listen now to the book that we love from Exodus 16. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elim, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven on you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. And that way I will test them whether they will follow my instructions or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it shall be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, Because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him. What are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining against him. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked toward the wilderness And the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I've heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there, on the surface of the wilderness, was a fine, flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. The house of Israel called it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, 
and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the food with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and set it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the covenant for safekeeping. Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to a habitable land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I still remember every year on my son's final day of preschool, their teacher, Miss Rebecca, would year by year gather them and all of the parents who had turned up for the juice and cookies and refreshments and to celebrate the end of the year. She would gather all of us onto the reading rug in her classroom, and she would share one final reading with her graduating class, so to speak. Year by year, at the very end of the year, before sending off all those little lives into their next year of kindergarten and elementary school, she would read them some words from the great 20th century philosopher Theodore Geisel. You might know him by his pen name, Dr. Seuss. She would open her copy of Dr. Seuss's book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, and share with the room these words. Oh, the places you'll go. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and soon take the lead. Except when you don't. Because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say so, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. You can get all hung up in a prickly perch. And your gang will fly on. You'll be left in a lurch. You will come to a place where the streets are not marked. Some windows are lighted, but mostly they're darked. A place you could sprain both your elbow and chin. Do you dare to stay out? You dare to go in? How much can you lose? How much can you win? You can get so confused that you'll start into race down long, wiggled roads at a breaknecking pace and grind on for miles across weirdish, wild space. Friends, what Dr. Seuss knows, and what that room of children inevitably learns, and what all of us learn, is that sooner or later, we encounter bang-ups and hang-ups. Sooner or later, we find ourselves in a season of our lives that feels like we have been grinding on for miles across weirdish, wild space. The image in the scriptures that we have for these inevitable times in our lives is that of the wilderness. So this morning, for a few moments, I want to invite you to step into the ancient wilderness journey of God's people that we have in the book of Exodus 
as we reflect on how it is that we make it through the wildernesses of our lives and how God meets us and changes us when we're in the wilderness. As the story that we heard together begins, the people of Israel are freshly emancipated from slavery. They've made the journey through the waters of the Red Sea into new lives. They hold a church service, and no sooner than they do that are they driven into the wild. As we watched this morning, they are now into the third month of an aimless journey. We imagine supplies are getting low, and their hunger is beginning to gnaw. The Israelites are in the Sinai Desert. It's a wedge-shaped peninsula between Egypt and the land of Canaan, and it's one of the most desolate places on the planet. In the tapestry of the scriptures, that place, the wilderness or the desert, it becomes a powerful image for the dark side of the spiritual journey, for our experiences of disorientation, disillusionment, times in which we're in deep trouble in life when we deal with heartache, pain, when somebody who said I do to you years ago decides that they don't anymore, when the test results come back with a diagnosis that shatters all that you had hoped for your future, then you're in the wilderness. What I want you to notice as we begin is that the Israelites, they are in the desert because God led them there. Even Jesus experiences this. If you read the stories of Jesus' life in the Gospels, uh, Jesus is, in the beginning of his public life, he's baptized, he's marked out as God's beloved. And then, in each of the stories of Jesus' life, we're told immediately, God's Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Everybody who belongs to God, everybody who lives a life with God, everybody who follows Jesus, follows Jesus into the wilderness. On the one hand, God doesn't, God is not the author of the wildernesses in your own life. But on the other hand, this story shows us that God uses the raw materials of wilderness experiences, darkness, heartache, trouble, pain, doubt, to form and shape us in faith. The writer T.S. Eliot One of the greatest poets in the 20th century in his magnum opus, The Four Quartets. He writes about the terrain of what happens in us as we go through wildernesses in our own lives. Here's how he puts it. He says, in order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess What you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. Now, I understand, especially for those of us perhaps who are here, who are, you're here with a friend or a family member and you're not somebody who'd consider yourself a Christian or or you're part of this community and you're exploring Christian faith, I I imagine inwardly right now you're saying to yourself, well, this is a heck of a sales job for Christianity that you're doing right now. But I want to be honest, and so do the scriptures with you about the realities of what life with God is really like. 
And I want to help you see the counterintuitive wisdom that we often miss because we live in a comparatively comfortable, affluent life situation in the world's West. You see, in modern Western life, we assume that, that life is about knowing more and more and more. What Eliot points out and what the scriptural story knows is that real transformation in life happens when you actually come to realize just how much it is that you don't know. We assume that life is about coming to possess more and more and more. The wisdom Eliot expresses of the Christian story is that transformation in your life happens when you actually learn to be freed from your attachments to your possessions. We assume that you arrive in life as you, as you gain notoriety or celebrity, as more and more people know who you are. The scriptural story, it, it tells us that you actually achieve depth as a person as you embrace hiddenness and humility. So this is the question. What do we do with, with the wildernesses of our own lives? The story shows us that often as not, our response to the wildernesses in our lives is desperation and self-medication. We're told a number of times in this text that the Israelites complain against Moses and Aaron and ultimately God. That, that word carries the sense of grumbling resentment. And God's people, like all of us, when we find ourselves in weirdish, wildish times in our own lives, they indulge in selective remembering. They're simply in denial about what their lives were. All that they could remember of their former life as slaves in Egypt is the five-course steak dinners and the all-you-can-eat pita bread for breakfast. They remember the food, but they forget the lash of the whip and the forced labor. Now, I want you to see this because oftentimes our knee-jerk reaction, especially in the culture in which we live, is that when we go through wilderness experiences, our knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, well, there must not be a God, or God must not care about me because I'm in a wilderness. What I want you to see from this story is that it's not because God doesn't care for us that God brings us into wildernesses. It's actually because he does care through us, care for us. It is in the wilderness that God finally gets through to us. The blistering heat of your own life's wilderness, if you will allow it, can actually become a furnace of transformation in your own life. See, in this story, it is in the desert that God's glory sneaks up on the Israelites. It's when they're at, when they're at the end of their rope that they actually encounter God. There's a psychologist named Dan Allender who writes about trauma and healing in a human life that points out this dynamic. He says it really well, so I want you to listen to what he says. He says, our spiritual journey must lead through the desert or else our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. It is in the silence of the desert that we hear our dependence on noise. It is in the poverty of the desert that we see clearly our attachments to the trinkets and baubles we cling to for security and pleasure. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God or die. 
You see, this is the sense in which God is testing his people. He's, he's forming in them God dependence. A generation later, on the other side of this whole aimless, meandering, and wandering existence, on the border of the land of Canaan, Moses would preach a swan song sermon to God's people before he dies that we now call the book of Deuteronomy. And looking back on this experience, Moses would say to God's people in Deuteronomy 1, God led you through the desert as a father carries a son. This is the sense in which God is testing us in, in the wildernesses of our lives. God's tests are the tests of a loving parent, a loving mother or father. Not that of an IRS auditor trying to trick you or a cranky professor trying to fail you. I thought about this just this past week. I, to my own shock and surprise, I'm now old enough that my oldest son has gotten his learning driver's permit and is beginning to learn how to drive a vehicle. And nothing has taken my prayer life to a whole new place like <laughs> that experience. But I, thought about, I thought about being a teenager myself and learning to drive. When I was a teenager, it only took me five tries to pass my driver's license test. And each time I would fail, my dad would get in the car with me, we'd go back out on the road, and he'd say, okay, let's try this again. We're going to do this again. This is the sense in which God tests us. God tests us so that God can shape and form us. So the question to consider is, as you go from here back out into your own life, perhaps for you is this. What are you going to do with your wilderness? Are you going to simply turn to desperation or self-medication? Or will you let it be a place of transformation? It's as they're in the wilderness that God's people learn to be nourished and sustained by him. God feeds his people day by day with manna. Now, this is actually in the the language this part of the Bible is written in this is a play on words. It literally means, what is it? When the Israelites say to each other, what is that? On the first morning that the manna turns up in the wilderness, they literally are saying, manhu, in, in this language to each other. God provides food in the wilderness so that God's people can metabolize into their lives, that he's the one who provides for them and sustains them, that God is their life. And this bread that God rains from heaven, it's an appetizer course for how God would one day nourish and sustain a whole creation stuck in the wilderness of sin and death. God would come among us in the person of Jesus. And one day as Jesus himself was in a wilderness with a crowd of his followers, he would say to them, I am the bread from heaven. I am the true bread of life. Jesus' crucified body on the wood of a Roman cross, would nourish a world once and for all starving for God. And his spilled blood would once and for all satisfy a world thirsty for grace. And so, for you and I, as we navigate the, the weirdish, wild spaces of our own lives, God invites us to come and find the deep hungers and thirsts of our lives satisfied in Jesus. We do that in the, in the book. Moses, in that same sermon in the book of Deuteronomy, would say to God's people, God, let you hunger in the wilderness to remind you 
that you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. We come to, we come to subsist on Jesus, the bread of life, and the living words of God, the scriptures. And we come to subsist on the bread of life as we come to the table. This is why as a community, we made the change a couple years ago to begin celebrating the Lord's table every week as we gather. Here's why. You need grace every week, and so do I. You're in a wilderness every single week, and so am I. As I sit, talk with folks who are a part of our community who navigate doubt or disillusionment, cynicism, trouble, distress, or addiction, there's lots of different things that I say, but one thing that I always say is get to this table every week. Jesus promises, if you, if you need grace, life, hope, help, I will meet you here. And when we come to this table, we get a little taste of home. We're told that the, that the manna, that the what is it bread, that it's sweet. And literally, it's a foretaste of where they're going. It's a foretaste of the, of the blessings of the land of Canaan. The scriptures describe the land of Canaan as, as a land tasting like milk and honey. And so each day when they have the manna, they're getting a little taste of where they're headed. And it's the same for us. One of my favorite chefs is a chef named Michael Solomonov. He's an Israeli chef who's started and owned restaurants in New York and Philadelphia and Miami. And as he did an interview recently about why it is that he cooks the kind of cuisine that he did, he said, I wanted to cook food that tasted like my home. When we come to this table week by week, as we'll do so now, we get a taste in the wildernesses of our own lives of the true home that God's bringing us to, of the feast that's life with God through Jesus forever. So friends, in the wilderness of your own life, may you come to live by being sustained by Jesus, the bread of life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.